Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, November 5th. In today's news, Iran takes another big step away from the nuclear deal. Pete Buttigieg surges in Iowa, and a well-intentioned micro-lending program in Guatemala exacerbates the crisis at our southern border. But first, the big idea. An attorney for Lev Parnas, one of the two associates of Rudy Giuliani who was arrested last month as he tried to fly to Europe with a one-way plane ticket, said last night that his client is willing to comply with the House impeachment inquiry. This is potentially huge news. He also strongly challenged the notion that Trump does not know Parnas. In a statement to The Washington Post, Joseph Bondi noted that Parnas had a number of interactions with the president and his personal attorney, that's Giuliani, despite Trump's insistence that he was not familiar with his client. He also said that Parnas plans to honor and not avoid requests from congressional investigators to the extent that they're legally proper and don't self-incriminate. Parnas's willingness to comply with the impeachment inquiry could provide congressional investigators with a trove of information about Giuliani's shadow foreign policy efforts in Ukraine. Parnas and his associate, Igor Fruman, helped Giuliani in his efforts to dig up dirt on Joe and Hunter Biden in Kiev. One reason last night's statement was significant is that Parnas has until now been represented by John Dowd, a former personal attorney for Trump who defended the president during the Mueller probe. Dowd told Congress last month that Parnas wouldn't cooperate at all, He claimed that his client didn't need to because he was protected by executive privilege since the work he was doing in Ukraine was on behalf of Trump, which, if true, is legally and politically problematic for the president. It's unclear whether House Democrats would be willing to grant Parnas congressional immunity in order to secure his testimony. Such immunity is a very seldom granted privilege that prevents prosecutors from using in a criminal case whatever a witness tells lawmakers. Now, historically, that can significantly complicate a prosecutor's ability to proceed, as it essentially taints even evidence they've gathered independent of Congress. Typically, lawmakers consult with the Justice Department before offering immunity. And in this instance, Bill Barr's political people at DOJ would no doubt oppose any move that could result in damning revelations emerging about this president. Spokespeople for DOJ and House Intelligence declined to comment last night. The big impeachment inquiry news earlier yesterday was that House Democrats put out transcripts of two depositions conducted in recent weeks. Those transcripts show that former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch testified that she felt threatened by Trump's comments about her. Yovanovitch, who's still a government employee, said that she remains worried that she'll be a target of retaliation by the White House. The president referred to her in that notorious July 25th phone call with Ukraine's president as, quote, bad news. And someone who he said ominously was, quote, going to go through some things. Yovanovitch's account was augmented by the separate release of the deposition of Michael McKinley, a former senior advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who resigned his position last month in protest over how Yovanovitch and others caught up in the Ukraine saga were being treated. McKinley also testified that he was concerned the State Department was being dragged into an attempted shakedown of a sovereign country for the president's personal 
political gain. At one point, Yovanovitch said during her deposition that she was advised by a colleague to turn to Twitter to improve her standing with the president before it was too late. That advice came from the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sundland, who's become embroiled in Trump's attempt to pressure Ukraine. You need to go big or go home, Sondland told Yovanovitch in her memory. She said she felt it was not appropriate for someone in her position to praise the president effusively on Twitter to save her job. And in another potential break for House investigators, a federal judge has agreed to fast-track Charlie Kupperman's request for the courts to decide whether he must comply with a House subpoena or the White House's order for him not to comply. U.S. District Judge Richard Leon of Washington ordered final arguments to be held December 10th at the request of the former Deputy National Security Advisor. Leon had previously said he intended not to take up the merits of the lawsuit until a later date. And in another legal blow to Trump, a federal appeals court has rejected the president's effort to block New York prosecutors from accessing his tax records. The ruling by the Second Circuit does not mean Trump's tax records will be turned over immediately, but it means the issue will likely be taken up by the Supreme Court, where Trump's legal team promises to appeal. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Iran has just announced this morning that it will begin injecting uranium gas into more than a thousand centrifuges in its Fordow enrichment facility. President Hassan Rouhani announced live on state television that he's ordering Iran's atomic energy organization to begin the new measures effective tomorrow. Under the 2015 nuclear agreement that the U.S. has withdrawn from, Iran is banned from enriching uranium at Fordo or even bringing uranium into that facility for 15 years. These measures mark the fourth step Iran has taken this year to reduce its obligations under the pact. In recent months, the Iranians exceeded caps on the size and purity of their enriched uranium stockpile. They've doubled the number of their advanced centrifuges. And Iranian officials say these moves are aimed at pushing European powers to offset punishing U.S. sanctions that have gone into effect since the U.S. pulled out of the deal. In related news about the consequence of America withdrawing from the world, the Trump administration notified the international community formally that it plans to officially withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord next fall. That move will leave the world's second largest emitter of greenhouse gases, that's us, as the only nation to abandon the global effort to combat climate change. Environmental and public health activists quickly condemned the decision, even though it came as no surprise. The Paris Climate Agreement legally entered into force on November 4, 2016. Under rules set out by the United Nations, no country could leave the accord for three years, after which there's a one-year waiting period for the withdrawal to fully take effect. Monday marked the first day the Trump administration could give that one-year notice, and it wasted no time. That means the U.S. will now officially leave the Paris Agreement on November 4, 2020. That's the day after next year's presidential election. Should a Democrat win the White House, the nation could reenter the agreement after a short absence, as numerous candidates have pledged to do. But if Trump prevails, his reelection would cement the long-term withdrawal of the United States, which was a key force in helping forge the global effort back when Barack Obama was president. Number two, Pete Buttigieg is surging in Iowa. He's filling the middle ground that's open between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the hard left and Joe Biden, 
in the middle, who's been dogged by the Ukraine saga and faces growing questions from regular voters about whether he's got the stamina for the presidency. The Buttigieg campaign scheduled a rally on a Saturday night in Des Moines that conflicted with an Iowa Hawkeyes football game. But more than 700 people still showed up, and they waited for hours, even though it was drizzling and cold. That's unusual in a place like Iowa. Something clearly is going on. Most campaigns don't even try to schedule events that conflict with big games. Steve Drahosel, the chairman of the Democratic Party in Dubuque County, a working-class area in northeastern Iowa that flipped to Trump in 2016 after backing Barack Obama twice and George W. Bush twice, says that he's hearing from a lot of rank-and-file types that they really like what Warren is saying, but they worry that she'll turn off voters who are moderates and Republicans, especially in that part of the country. More than 800 people turned out to hear Buttigieg speak in Dubuque the other night during a picturesque rally along the Mississippi River. It's one of the largest rallies to date in Iowa. While Biden remains beloved and respected among Democrats, Drahosel passed along that Buttigieg is viewed by some Democrats there as a, quote, more palatable alternative who could win over liberals without scaring moderates. For his part, Buttigieg is modulating and triangulating to try repositioning himself so he better matches the moment. When he first got into the race last year, Buttigieg made early headlines by talking up really liberal ideas like restructuring the Supreme Court or abolishing the Electoral College. He never talks about that stuff anymore. Since late in the summer, he's cast himself as a Midwestern pragmatist who offers what he calls real solutions and not more polarization. That slogan dings both the less defined Biden approach and the plan-heavy Warren strategy. Now, I was critical to Buttigieg's campaign. While he's moved up in polling in the first state, below Warren but competitive with Biden and Sanders, he's not yet seen as significant a shift in national polling or even the other early states. His campaign hopes that a strong showing in the caucuses in February could vault him into the top tier across those later states, particularly those like South Carolina not dominated by the white and educated voters who represent his base of support. Other candidates are trying to fill this lane, too, but they've not succeeded thus far. Former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke was once seen as a contender for this lane, but he's dropped out. Buttigieg also has the advantage of money. He's raised more than $51 bucks. That's allowed him to be on TV in Iowa and put together one of the largest campaign operations on the ground. He's got more than 110 staffers and 21 field offices, on par with Warren and Biden. Other campaigns, meanwhile, continue to contract. Former Housing Secretary Julian Castro is laying off all of his campaign staff in New Hampshire and South Carolina. He's going all in in Iowa with a $50,000 television ad buy beginning this morning. He's doing this because in order to qualify for the next debate, Castro needs to hit 3% in four polls approved by the Democratic National Committee, which includes state polls. He hasn't met the mark in a single poll yet. He has one week left to go, so he's trying to gin up his numbers in Iowa. Number three, a vast system of credit that includes financial institutions supported by the U.S. government and the World Bank are enabling loans to migrants in Guatemala that are then used to pay smugglers who promise to help them cross the border. The U.S. government and the World Bank have each extended tens of millions of dollars in funding and loan guarantees money that helped create what is now Guatemala's biggest microfinance organization and supported one of its largest banks. But in communities around that country, those financial institutions now serve Guatemalans eager to get out of the country. 
Access to credit has helped make the Central American nation the largest single source of migrants to the United States over the past year. About 2% of the population of the country has been apprehended at the U.S. border since 2018. Think about that. One in 50 people from all of Guatemala have been captured at the southern border, which means they went all the way through Mexico. This has had devastating consequences for those who fail in their journeys to try to make it into America. Those who are deported before they are able to earn enough to pay back their loans become ensnared by debt, losing all their savings, their businesses, and their homes. That makes them even more likely to try to migrate again into the U.S., even if it's physically perilous. U.S. officials say they've stopped supporting direct lending microfinance programs in Guatemala, and the World Bank is scaling them back as well. Part of the challenge is that increasing access to finance among the world's poorest people is a crucial tool for development. In this case, though, it's fueling a cycle of poverty and dependency. Beware the road paved with good intentions. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, November 5th. Thanks for listening. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. It's updated whenever news happens. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'll talk to you tomorrow.